Hello and welcome book nerds. Yes, it's the second time I'm calling you nerds, but I'm establishing this as a tradition and I, I, I'm going to stick with it. So hello, book nerds. I am Kate Gibson slash fellow book nerd. And I'm Charlie Gibson. I still have trouble with the phrase book nerd, but Katie takes it as a compliment and <laughs> therefore I will too. But if the definition is a lover of books, then I think we all qualify. <laughs> we who are shooting our mouths off and you who are who are listening. We have today a wonderful author who is a good friend of Kate's. She went to college with J. Ryan Straddle, and he has had two extraordinarily successful books so far. This is his third. It is Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. And well, you should explain the title. Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. First of all, I probably um, do a disservice to our intros because I always say I'm so excited or I'm so excited. I can't wait. It's probably lost its power now. I've probably said it so often, but I do get really excited about my job. So I want you to know I'm always sincere. But if I'm excited every single week this week, I am ecstatic. I went to film school with J. Ryan Straddle back when he just sort of wore black and ski caps and always had facial hair and listened to R.E.M. And I think I even said this the last time we had him on, he wrote a play in college. And most people, when they write in college and say I'm a writer in college, it's, um, well, it's college writing. <laughs> um, it's, <laughs> it's writing about figuring yourself out and angst and um, do I really love my parents, blah, 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 blah. Jay Ryan always wrote on another level. He always did. He just has this incredible way of looking at the world. And I, when he sent me his first book, he sent me Kitchens of the Great Midwest, which was his first novel. He sent it to me before it was published. And when I finished it, I was in tears, not so much because the ending was sad, but because it was like watching my friend take off from a launching pad. Yeah. I just was very proud of him and he continues to develop. Well, it was extraordinary, the reception for that book. It was a huge bestseller. It was wonderful. And it was built around, as the title would suggest, food. Jay Ryan is from Minnesota. I would take exception with only one thing you said, which is he admits he's still trying to figure himself out. Yeah. And he's still trying to figure out his relationship with Minnesota. And that is very evident in this book. Uh, the Lakeside Supper Club is in a rural part of Minnesota. And as Jay Ryan will say in this discussion, that Minnesota is still very much a part of him, mm -hmm. even though he has left and moved elsewhere. And the other thing that's very much a part of him, which I love, is his mom, who passed away before his first book was published. And my goodness, would she be proud of him. And yet he says she's in every book he writes. And there's a wonderful character in this book, Muriel, and that, he says, is his mom. I think one of the things that makes him unique as a writer that I love so much about him is his female characters are very strong. And I think he writes them very well. And I think that's a direct influence of his mother. He was sort of a left of center member of his family, as he will be the first to tell you. I'm one of the first men in my family that doesn't shoot what I eat or ride a motorcycle. And so he always felt very, you know, as if he didn't fit in and his mom was his lifeline. I love what you said about Minnesota. I live here now. And when people ask you about Minnesota, they say Minnesota nice. Well, there's a lot of layers to that. Minnesota, they are indirect communicators. Now to me, <laughs> That is the difference between the East Coast and the Midwest. And there's value in both methods of communication. I am definitely more comfortable with one over the other. When he says 
Supper Club, and he will talk about it in this conversation. It's a very distinct kind of place where you go to eat. As we said, food is very much a theme in his books. I think I said to him as we talked, I could feel this place. I could feel the glasses with the indentations around the side. I could see the bar. I could see the tablecloths and the china. His powers of description are so evocative that you get a sense of this place and the great big plate glass window that looks out on the lake. It's not fine dining as it's defined in big cities. The supper club is where you go if you're in these more rural areas, uh, particularly in Minnesota. It's where you go to mark a special occasion. It's not overly expensive, but it's not cheap either. It's not fast food. And I could see the bar. I could see the waitresses. I could see, I could see the whole thing. And that's a testament, I think, and a tribute to the way he writes. He really does do a terrific job of allowing you to see the faux wood paneling. And I think, too, that he would describe this place as a family restaurant, but not just because families go there, but because families become families there. You know, oh, we're pregnant. We should go to the supper club. Oh, oh, he graduated. We should go to the supper club. Um, You know, you get to, you know, he wanted to have his Irish wake at the supper club. You go through an entire life cycle of a family in some ways with this restaurant, the way he describes it. And I just love it. Well, this book is a saga of a family as it develops, as it tries to hold on to the restaurant. But it's not just that. It's a very personal book for Jay Ryan because as Kate knows, she's a friend of his, he and his partner went through a long battle to get pregnant. And he writes about the male outlook on all of that, which I thought was very moving and moving when he talks about it. So enough preface, let's get to the conversation with Jay Ryan Straddle. The book is Saturday night at the Lakeside Supper Club. J. Ryan Straddle, it's good to have you back in the bookcase, and it's delightful that you have a new book out, Saturday night at the Lakeside Supper Club. Kate and I love talking to you the first time. We're delighted to talk to you again. Tell me the difference between a supper club and a restaurant. Wow, great question, Charlie. Um, to me, a supper club is an event space, not just a space for eating. You go in and no one's going to rush you out. <laughs> Yeah, whether if the event is just the meal, it's a meal that you can savor, a meal that will come in several courses, perhaps, from the relish tray to the grasshoppers. And traditionally, supper clubs have had entertainment of some kind, either dancing or live music or both. They're usually in rural locations, almost always family owned. All in all, it adds up to a unique experience that a restaurant isn't always. You say a proper supper club meal begins with a free relish tray and a basket of bread. That's right. With a round of brandy old fashions. That's right. And then a lavish amount of hearty cuisine with fish on Fridays, prime rib on Saturdays, and grasshoppers for dessert. I can feel the place. I can see the place. Talk to us a little bit about the Supper Club's role in the book and how it sort of symbolizes the story. In the book, it symbolizes a lot of what I think is disappearing in common middle class dining. I'd say that's a sector of the dining realm that becoming increasingly homogenized to the extent it still exists, it feels like, you know, as a restaurant enthusiast and casual observer, not a participant or employee in the business, that you have a wide array of cheap fast food or the equivalent from interesting food trucks to McDonald's. And you have an array of fine dining that's going to cost a family at least a hundred bucks to eat out at. 
and not a ton in between. And what does exist in between is quite often a chain owned by multinational conglomerate. There exists within that realm, though, family-run diners and supper clubs. And it doesn't seem like people are making many more of them. I'm interested because the supper club serves as a backdrop to tell sort of the multi-generational story of a Minnesota family. And it seems to be a theme that you come back to often. What is it about food and drink that you think provides what you need to tell the kind of stories that you tell? Hmm. Growing up in the northern Midwest, I was really steeped in the agricultural history of both my family and the region that they grew up in and they sustained the family in. Food was not just vital to survival from a (laughs) a biological standpoint, it was from a financial standpoint. Most of my descendants, in one way or another, worked in the food business as a grower, supplier. Unlike most other restaurants, supper clubs are generally always family-owned and quite often multi-generational and passed from one generation to another, like a farm would be, like a garden, like a plot of land where cranberries are harvested or any other food might be harvested. And so growing up in a breadbasket amidst this, food is, oh, what's the word? You know, the same rain that falls on your head is the same rain falling on the tomatoes that you're eating that night. There's a sense of connectedness to it that I felt as a kid. I remember growing my own rhubarb. Like you do. You know, it's no no great accomplishment in Minnesota. Like, try not to grow rhubarb. If an errant rhubarb seed blows into your backyard, you'll rue the day you watered it. But yeah, I remember successfully growing rhubarb as a child and being so proud of myself for having put food on my family's table. And there's that idea that there's merit and value and honor to that. And I'm interested in exploring that. I'm interested in the way in which food signifies class, in which food signifies taste and aesthetic, but most of all, in which food provides a living for people in different ways. One of the things that I envision about the Supper Club is that it is absolutely central to its community. Each one has its own flavor, depending on the demographics it serves and the location. I chose the name Lakeside Supper Club for mine because they're quite often near lakes. That's the blandest name a supper club could have as Lakeside, I think. Yeah, I may as well have called it like... (laughs) (laughs) boy i can't think of a blander name i mean what was the genesis of this story so there's this sprawling intergenerational family story so much about parents and children and sort of the pressure to either go in the direction your family expects or create your own path which i feel like is another sort of theme of your work is do you go where you're expected or do you hammer out your own path is that fair that's fair the genesis of the story was becoming a father for the first time Yeah. And thinking about my life now in terms of legacy. I think I'd always sort of assumed before having a child that whatever was left behind after I died was going to be some poor sap's responsibility to put in a pile and burn. But now that I've got a child or rather that I've got had the nerve to uh, bring a child into the world, I started thinking about what I'm going to pass on that they're going to value. And I have the expectation that he'll recalibrate it as needed. He'll take what's useful to him and reject the rest. And I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about the expectations we have for the next generation to preserve what we think is valuable, yet at the same time, leaving room and respect for them to discern for themselves what is valuable. I think Mm -hmm. things are going to change in his generation much more 
oh boy, much more. <laughs> I don't want to say negatively because I'm not entirely pessimistic, but I think to a greater extent than the changes we've experienced in the last 30 years in our adult lives. I think the first 30 years of his adult life are going to look a, a lot different than ours. And I just want to help him shine. I just want to enable him to be a force for good in the world and find what works for him within that. And that was ultimately the theme of my book. And that's why the book ended the way it did. I'm trying not to have spoilers here, but I, I knew the ending before I started writing. I knew it was going to end with that scene. Mm. And I thought, okay, how do I get there? How do I earn this? <laughs> <laughs> you work backwards. Uh, right. No, but it's interesting because you dedicate this book to yeah. your son. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, the, and I was going to even ask you about that dedication because the dedication is for Auden if he so that's chooses. That's right. It's up to him. <laughs> and I was going to ask you to interpret if he so chooses. I mean, is that when you say if he so chooses, is it that philosophy of legacy, that theme of legacy that you're exploring? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. If he so chooses what? He can derive whatever meaning he wishes from that. I think part of my journey through fatherhood has been thinking not to overexplain things to him, not to lay things out too firmly, as tempted as I am <laughs> to chart a course for him that would delight the heck out of me. <laughs> I need him to uh, show me who he is, and I need to create the space for that person. Is that what your mother did for you? Yeah, absolutely. There's a certain sense of ennui or nostalgia in this book, to me, there is a, a central tension between whether things stay as they are in this part of Minnesota with a supper club that is a center part, or whether we branch out into new kinds of restaurants and whether modernity is going to come to this community. How did you want to depict that tussle? And where do you come down on it? Well, that's such a wonderful question, because growing up in a town like I did in Hastings, Minnesota, there were people who thought once an Applebee's arrived, we're a real town now. There's, <laughs> we're on the map. I mean, there are chain restaurants in Hastings already, the usual fast food franchises and a Perkins, which at that time were pretty omnipresent throughout the Northern Midwest. But an Applebee's was one of the new wave of, you know, fast, casual sit down restaurants. And we were worthy of that. So that legitimized our town in the eyes of some. And I remember hearing that freely spoken without irony. And that's been the case in a lot of places. I've heard tell over the years, many times in smaller communities than Hastings, when a certain type of restaurant arrived, it made them feel like they're noticed. And I, I don't want to take away from the genuine joy that people who feel that way might experience. But at the same time, I also view it as a bit of a death knell I come down on just trying to add to the conversation. I certainly have my own opinions, but I don't feel like I'm trying to write some kind of definitive history of the evolution of public dining in the Northern Midwest. I did want to contrast the stalwart nature of a supper club against the, as you put, modernization and sort of runaway capitalism that undergirds the spread of franchise restaurants throughout my home region because they are a threat to restaurants like supper clubs, you know, and I, I get to that in the book that they're able to do successful battle with them with certain dishes at certain price points. And so it's up to the consumers in these areas to consider what do you value more saving a couple bucks on your steak or sustaining a family that, you know, in a place that doesn't exist anywhere else on the planet. As Katie and I were reading this book simultaneously, Kate said to me, Dad, this is Jay's most personal book. I see him 
so much in this book personally, because I know him and I know how this reflects his personality and his thoughts and his life arc. And his anxieties. And his anxieties. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Absolutely. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Yeah. I'd say Mariel's the character that's most like my mom. I put my mom in all my books, but she's the one that's probably been closest to her. And so writing Mariel was really like having a conversation with my mom in an intimate way, in a way I've done in all my books, but with this one, much more close to the bone. Also in tracking Mariel and Ned's fertility struggle that mirrored what I was going through at the time. My partner, Brooke, and I had three unsuccessful IVF attempts before having a child. And both of us struggled with fertility. And I didn't see many books written by men that dealt with fertility at all, let alone male infertility. And I thought, hey, I'll be that guy. I'll go there. <laughs> I, I think it would have comforted me to know such things existed in novels. And I think writing about this kind of topic and tackling it the way I attempted hopefully will give any readers that I, I managed to reach out to through this book that might be going through the same thing. A little bit of the comfort and recognition and validation that I would have wanted to have. I hope anyway. I certainly also put in a lot of the ignorance I had into Ned about the fertility arc and timelines and so on. Like uh, his musings on how soon after a miscarriage they can be fertile again. Things like that. Like things that I didn't know anything about going into that process. I had Ned be wrong too in the same ways I'm wrong. No, I think it's it's hard, you know, because... I went through a quite a bit of struggle with IVF, as you know, Jay, because in some ways yeah. we, we, we did some calling of each other and going, oh, my God. Yeah, um, and yeah. it's it's an incredibly isolating process. It's an incredibly lonely process. And sometimes the woman feels like she's alone and she forgets to think about how difficult it is for her partner and her partner's always having to. But there is the loneliness that you feel when you get the call from the nurse that you've been waiting for. And they say, I'm sorry, that test is negative. When would you like to schedule your next appointment? And you think to yourself, lady, this call was about my future. You held my future in your hands. And, and, and you know, God love nurses. They have really tough jobs. Okay. But, but I just remember how lonely that felt. Well, we don't bear the physical brunt, which is extreme. We share the emotional burden. And to see your partner go through what they go through physically and otherwise it's it's just heartrending emotionally it's a loss in equal shares it feels like mm -hmm. nothing i've been through before and you're right it's so isolating it was so isolating for my partner and it was a very lonely space for me because there just didn't seem to be many resources or outlets in our society for people to reflect on this on this loss there are mm socially accepted spaces for other kinds of loss, but not this. It's, I mean, in a lot of industries, you could have a miscarriage and be expected to go back to work the next day. And sometimes people <laughs> do without thinking about it or thinking that they should, you know, and I wanted to, to I wanted to address that too. And I think I do right away in the, near the beginning or right. like in the friendship between Brenda and Mariel, uh, some reflection on mm -hmm. that and what our society expects of women and how hard our society is on pregnant women and women who are struggling to conceive. I've been there, <laughs> you know, I've had a front row seat for it for years. <laughs> and I feel like 
I want to write about this. I know the fertility clock is a plot point in a lot of books, but I also feel like infertility is a part of that, especially in our society where I don't see it written about quite enough in fiction. And I thought, well, you know, I want to do what I can to make people like me feel a little less alone. In John Irving's breakthrough novel, World According to Garp, he's always worried about the undertoad, the danger that is right around the corner for his child. And that's actually a continuing theme in his books, that there is always this sort of dire feeling that something could happen. Given the fact that Auden, your son, is something of a miracle, is that feeling always in you? (laughs) It's paralyzing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's why this book for me was a mission to let loose a little bit, to loosen my grip on that paranoia. I would suspect, having gone through what you go through, have gone through, what your characters in this book go through, that that feeling is always there and always right in the front of your mind. I know I feel it's a miracle we let him out of the house. (laughs) (laughs) But I put some of that into into, uh, Florence when Florence becomes a mother. And she's like, oh, my child can't play in the front yard because there's no curb. My child can't play in the backyard because there's bees. To paraphrase John Irving, you know, that danger around every corner. That's the filter through which Florence can only see parenting. Florence is unable to let go of that. And so in creating Mariel and Ned, that was my attempt to create a style of parenting that loosens the reins a little bit, which is what I'm trying to model myself after. I think inside in my heart of hearts, I'm Florence, but I'm trying really hard to be Ned and Mariel. <laughs> it's beautifully done. It's beautifully done no, in this book. Yeah, it really, it, it is. It's um, there, I think, almost too sometimes when you've been through the journey that you and I have been through, there's almost an extra level of it. When we talked to Mary Laura Philpott about her book, Bomb Shelter, and we talked about the fact that like for me, I, I almost sometimes feel like there's an extra anxiety because I feel like, I'm not supposed to have them. Um, yeah, right, right, right. I cheated something to have them. Right. And on the one hand, that makes me a great parent because I so desperately wanted them. But on the other hand, it creates that anxiety on the other end. You think having them is the finish line, but then you have them and you go, but I can't lose them. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, you nailed it, Kate. Absolutely. <laughs> I feel exactly the same way. When we talked before, you talked about, you know, we talked about, are you ever going to write about living in Los Angeles? You've been a Los Angeles native for a really long time. And you said, no, I think I'm going to be unpacking Minnesota for a while. What is it about Minnesota that won't let go of you? Wow. It's such a complex place that I think is often simplified or misunderstood. Fortunately, I think we live in a generation where there's a preponderance of diverse Minnesota voices that I didn't experience as a young reader. So now I just feel like I want to add to the conversation and write about the aspects of Minnesota I feel are absent from bookshelves or I'd like to see more of. But, you know, the state made me who I am. And that's a lot to unpack. Like, what are the what are the forces <laughs> here that both created an abiding love for the place in me and also drove me away from it? it it's, <laughs> it's like a, a really complex friendship. And Mm. yeah, I've been thinking about that my whole life. Like, why do I love this place? And why did I move as far away as I did from it? I think I also kind of want to tell the story of someone from Minnesota who moves to California that like fish out of water. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back into some uncomfortable places in my personal history. But since when have I been afraid of that? (laughs) 
Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. So we have some rapid fire questions for Jay Ryan Straddle. What's the hardest part of being an author? Oh, being away from your family. Mm. In that you're isolated when you write or when you have to go on a book both, tour? Both. Yeah, both. What do you wish someone had told you before you started being a writer about being a writer? That it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> that works. We just talked to Harlan Coben. He said he loved his job because he just sits around and makes up stuff. Can you relate to that? That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. That's a great way of putting it. I read a, a piece in the New York Review of Books, a little essay, and the author talked about the life of a writer. He said there's a sense of constant failing with success being a temporary attire. Do you feel as you write, oh my God, I've lost it? I guess I don't really think about the act of writing is success or failure, though. It's not competitive for me, or I don't think about it in those kind of absolute terms. What happens is characters just emerge in my head and they start talking to me and I better write down what they say or they'll get mad. <laughs> uh, I feel like I'm just taking dictation from realms of my life that are consonant with a particular theme I'm interested in. There's no other way of putting it. It just feels like I'm watching something and I'm writing it down and I, I should transcribe the action like a reporter. But that said, I do love inhabiting characters and I, I love writing close third and being the subject as well as the object. Sue Miller said to us, all my characters are my employees. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm their employee, though. <laughs> so you're now releasing your new book. Are you now going back and reading older stuff? Oh, older stuff of mine? Yeah. Do you go back and you read the first book? I'm not sure if I've read the first book since before it came out. Really? Yeah. I mean, there are excerpts that I've memorized and there are parts that I'll go and rehearse to uh, prepare for certain events. But I don't know. For me, it's like asking a high school senior if they'd relive freshman year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's done. I, I made it through that. Were there things I would have done differently? Absolutely. Were there things that were great? Absolutely. Do you love where you are even more? Absolutely. So 
So Katie, what'd you take away from this? Oh, this book, this book, this book, this book. Every time I read a Jay Ryan book, I know I'm in for a treat, partially because I know his voice and partially because I love his writing. This book, as you said before we even started the interview, was very personal for him. Jay Ryan and I went through, in some ways, our infertility journeys together. And we knew, like we knew when the other one was going to get a call about whether we were successful or not. And we would sometimes check on each other and sometimes not check on each other. One of the things I think that they don't tell you, whether you are male or female, and Jay Ryan and I touched on this a little bit in the interview, the struggling with fertility and IVF is one of the loneliest, most isolating processes you can possibly go through. The man feels alone. The woman feels alone. Everybody feels alone. And everybody's desperate for the same thing. Those clinics are are mentally taxing. And even when we found out, you know, that we were lucky enough to be pregnant, David and I were very conscious of taking our ultrasound photos and sticking them under our shirt when we walked out because we knew we wanted the thing that everybody in the lobby wanted, that we had that and we felt we needed to. It's just, it's a very emotionally complex process. I am so glad Jay Ryan wrote about it. It's one, to me, it's one of the more powerful aspects of the book. Yes. He has a son, obviously, that he's crazy about. (laughs) And you have a couple of kids that you are crazy about. And yeah, I remember you telling me that the lobby of the fertility clinics, that the predominant emotion was tears, that so many people were there realizing they, they, it wasn't going to work or it hadn't worked. And maybe they would try again and again and again, but so far it wasn't working. And I understand why you would hide the sonogram pictures because you didn't want to say, well, it's worked for me and it, I know it isn't working for you. And good luck. Yeah. And mm-hmm. good luck and good luck. And mm-hmm. as you say, in the conversation with Jay Ryan, it's a, <laughs> that call from the nurse when she says, sorry, is a, uh, is a really wrenching experience. And even Jay Ryan talks about it. And even in his coda at the end of the podcast, I loved (laughs) the way he closed. He closed our conversation as you will hear in a few moments. We do have a bookstore this week. It is in Minneapolis, Minnesota being Jay Ryan's home. We thought it would be good to marry it with a a Minnesota bookstore. This is a new one in Minneapolis, which you have already visited, right? Oh, I love it. And I love the woman who runs it. It's a very small storefront. She barely has enough room to put more than one copy of each of the books she loves in the shop. They're very carefully curated selections. I just love Victoria Ford. Kama is the bookstore. If you live in the Twin Cities, go because she's awesome. Anyway, here's our conversation with Victoria Ford at Kama. Victoria Ford of Kama, Kama, a bookstore, uh, Kama. No, it's again. I'm, I'm, you guys get the general idea. How long have you been around now? We opened just after Thanksgiving, so Small Business Saturday, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, was our opening day. And can I just make a small correction? It's Kama, Kama, a bookshop. Got it. Okay, Kama, a bookshop. It's not Kama semicolon. A bookshop. It's not. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so I want to start out by asking you, how did you get bitten by the bug? How did you end up saying, yeah, this is something I want to do? Because it's not because you're going to become a quadrillionaire. <laughs> well, you know, I sort of joke with folks that my previous life was in the nonprofit sector. So it makes the gamble of starting a small business and a small bookstore business in particular, uh, less of a gamble, not that <laughs> high of a hill to fall off of. Tell me the process of how you go about the logistics of doing this. You have to find a site. You have to get book cases. 
you have to know how to order books and how to, uh, as you come from a nonprofit world, you have to know how to keep the books uh, <laughs> to be able to tell whether or not you're making any money or not. So what is the process of starting a bookstore? Ooh. Well, like I said, for me, it started with just research and starting from the most bare bones, just literally Googling and like what goes into running a bookstore because I don't have any experience or I didn't six months ago have any experience in the bookstore world. So it started from just those kinds of basics. And then I got a lot of help. So I took a course with a local organization called Women Venture, which supports uh, women entrepreneurs. So they helped me write a business plan and sort of learn all of the pieces that should go into starting any business. I got a, a mentor from SCORE. So got a great deal of help from a mentor there. And then I took some, I guess, classes, you'd call them, through the American Booksellers Association to learn a lot more about the book industry itself. And then after I had the business plan, kind of a financial model, then I started looking for sites once I had a, a guess at what I could afford and so on and where I wanted to be. As sort of the budgets became actual dollars spent and actual contracts signed, then I started thinking like, huh, yeah, we'll see. Now, you know, now I just wrote a check for 20 grand for bookshelves. Like, <laughs> I hope this works out. So when I'm walking in right now and I'm saying I'm looking for a really good read, what do you hand me? Yeah. Well, first, I'd probably ask you a bunch of questions about what you love to read. <laughs> but let's say you just give me free reign. There's two books that I'm telling everybody about right now. So one is Age of Vice, which is a book that has gotten a lot of attention. I'm not sure if you've read it, but ooh, it's so fun. I'm seeing you shaking your heads. This is I'm excited for you to take a look at this. Uh, Deepti Kapoor. And I've been describing it as the godfather set in India, in that it's a, I don't want to suggest that it's derivative at all. It's definitely not. But it is a big, sprawling, corrupt family, multi-generational. And the younger generation is trying to decide whether he wants to be a part of that or wants to break off and do something on his own. And it's all the family entanglements, as well as the, the kind of fast pace, page turner, you know, whodunit crime story. Super fun. It walks the line between, like I said, just something you gobble down as a page turner and literary novel where you're really feeling what the characters are feeling. And it's the start of a trilogy. So that's exciting because I loved it. And so, of course, now I'm desperately waiting for the, the next two to come out. The other one also just came out in January, and that's Moonrise Over New Jessup. And that one is a beautiful book. I have not seen getting as much traction, and I really want it to. So I'm talking it up to everybody. <laughs> and that's by Jamila Minix. I hope that I'm saying her name right. That's the story of a woman in 1950s Alabama, a Black woman who escapes from her abusive landlord and is moving up north to live with her sister in Chicago, but along the way finds herself in a town that had been founded by Black elders who wanted to create a town where they, it was only for Black folks. And she winds up there and ends up really falling in love with, well, with a man, but also with the freedom that she feels in being somewhere where she doesn't have to watch herself and worry about staying safe. And it's 1957, I think. And so the town is now grappling with whether they want to continue along this direction or whether they should move into integration. And so there are activists on both sides in the town. And uh, it's a kind of a social debate, but also a really beautiful story about that debate that's happening within her own family with her husband. It's just gorgeous. Moonrise over New Jessup. That's the one I want everybody to read. That is terrific. The store is comma. And then there's a comma, a bookshop. 
It is on Upton Avenue South in Linden Hills, the Linden Hills neighborhood of Minneapolis. Stop by and chances are you'll run into Victoria Ford, who will be happy to put a book in your hands. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Please do. Kate and I like to think that we're the only people who make this podcast possible. Not true. There is a little coterie of folks at ABC Audio that help us out, and we appreciate them. We should give you their names. The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer, and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. I would say that when a tree falls on your house, as happened to me last week, try to look on it the way my three-year-old son would, which is, now can I climb it, Daddy? (laughs) (laughs) I love that, Coda. That's great. That's great. Oh, I love you, Jay. Thank you. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.